Welcome, Joylanders. Uh, this is a review of last week's message. Got two goals in this. One, I want to be concise in my review with you. And second, I want to capture this stuff, start capturing our, our message and our conversation on video so it can benefit some other people. If you remember, uh, I think this is an important topic. Last week, we looked at the concept of sovereignty, wanted to understand what that meant, how it was applied to God, how we talk about it in our everyday life and Christian experience, and whether or not we need to adjust the way we're thinking about it. So we looked at sovereignty and discovered that the meaning of the words uh, in English were just very basic. It had to do with the ability to rule or being the person who has the ability or authority or power to rule or the combination of all those things. And so we thought we'd look in the Old Testament, and uh, there were a couple words, uh, Malku, Malkuth, um uh, a very, very limited number of words that are translated sovereignty in the New American Standard, and they mean exactly the same thing. They mean it's either the, the sovereign, which is the person who has the authority and the power to rule and make decisions, uh, doesn't have to answer to anybody, uh, doesn't have an authority behind them, and uh, the adjective is uh, use of it is the manifestation of that rule, whatever that can. It's translated kingdom and domain and other things like that, but it is translated sovereignty a few times. In the New Testament, there's a Greek word, dynasties, which I think is where we get our word dynasty from, but it means exactly the same thing. It means dominion or rule or power, or it means the ruler, if it's sovereign, uh, is the translated. It means the person who has the power or the God who has the power to rule. So, meaning, basically simple, uh, it means the authority to rule and the exercise of that authority. Uh, I would add that, that that includes choosing to do what you will and what you won't. Uh, Harold Eberle defines the word sovereignty in a straightforward way. He said it is God, the sovereignty of God is the power of God to do what he wants, when he wants, with whom he wants, um, and he doesn't have to answer to anybody else. Okay, So that's what sovereignty means, the authority to rule. I started looking, as you know, uh, into the scripture to try to find it, and uh, the place I usually study is New American Standard. And so here's the New American Standard on my concordance, if you can see it. I know it's a little bit small to read, but uh, you'll notice that there's just eight listings. The first one, Psalms 103.19, uh, is what I expected out of sovereignty, and I think what most of us think sovereignty means. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Um, interestingly enough, that verse, and that verse alone, is where the word is translated sovereignty and used and applied to God. The other... First uh, Timothy 6.15, Paul just says this in a very straightforward way. He's talking about God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So I thought, wow. Okay, so I was uh, not surprised by the meaning. I was surprised that only two instances applied to God because of how uh, big a deal we make of the sovereignty of God in our doctrinal talk in our everyday life. And I was, uh, quite frankly, I was surprised that there was only eight verses. So I looked it up in a couple other uh, translations. In the ESV, there's only three, uh, all in the New Testament. They don't translate any word in the Old Testament, sovereign or sovereignty. And I looked in the Revised Standard, there's one in the Old Testament. I was really shocked when I looked at the uh, King James Version and realized that there wasn't any use of the word sovereignty in the whole uh, King James, Old or New Testament. But then I got to this, and that is the New International Version. And I go, Wow. The NASB has eight uses of the word sovereign. The New International has 305. I start digging in. I go, why? Why? Well, they actually make the choice in this modern translation, coming from Reformed theology, they actually make the choice to replace the name of God, Jehovah, with the word sovereign. 
whenever it says Jehovah Adonai. Uh, they now translate it Sovereign Lord. And so I just realized, wow, this is something we've got to work on. I started thinking, what in the world would lead modern translators to translate the very name of God instead of calling him Jehovah or, or like the New American Standard calls him Lord with all capital letters? Why would they do sovereign? And it's because sovereignty in our modern Western theology has been endued with uh, stuff beyond its meaning, like nobody's business. Uh, every natural disaster, every personal crisis that happens, everything that we don't understand, we throw in the bucket of being the sovereignty of God. And it's a terrible violation on the meaning of the word, and I believe it's also something that creates a great distance between us and God. So I just want to state simply, in review of last week's message, the sovereignty of God does nothing to tell us about the choice that that sovereign God is going to make. It doesn't tell us what he's going to do. It doesn't tell us why he's going to do it. It only tells us that he has the authority to do it. You cannot determine what God is doing, or even if God did something, by trotting out the concept of sovereignty. You have to look at the who, the why, and his character. And so sovereignty is not the answer to that. Sovereignty just means he has the power to rule. What he's going to use that rule for, how he's going to treat you, how he's going to treat your neighbor, that is determined by other factors than sovereignty. And we're going to get into those because we also discovered that sovereignty is almost immediately, God's sovereignty is almost immediately pitted against the free will of man. And I want to tell you that all of that kind of thinking that assigns every act in the universe to God's sovereignty or that pits God's sovereignty against man's free will is nonsense because the sovereign God can choose to give man free will. He can choose to do what he wants, with he wants, with whom he wants. So we're going to look at it today. I hope you enjoy the message. That's a review from last week. God bless. Okay, well, you guys are very kind. There was a bunch of horrible jump cuts in there, and, and uh, it only took 24 takes. So it was pretty good. And the reason that I look like Kilroy was here is because I didn't realize I was going to have that banner across the bottom, so I didn't frame myself high enough. But it's a start. And I won't prolong. Huh? I did. I did a little bit. Um, so I won't prolong. The point in that was... Do you guys feel like you're caught up on what we're going to talk about today? All right, here goes. i got to get a stool. So uh, that last point, that you cannot determine what a sovereign is going to do based on the, the issue of sovereignty alone, it's really an important point, I think, and it, uh, it's a point of confusion that I, I think is messing us up big time. Where is everybody? Okay. Because if we use sovereignty to, to just shut down an argument or we use sovereignty to take the pressure off trying to understand what God's doing and why, we're going to lose part of our relationship with him. And that's what I want to come against right now. So we're going to move beyond sovereignty to relationship, and here's the goal. I want to celebrate God's sovereign authority and power. I don't want to lose anything like that. Okay, God is sovereign. There's no question about it. He has the authority and power to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whom he wants. But I, I don't want to. I want to celebrate that while we realize that we are participating with his will and purpose, because it's partly our dignity and identity that gets lost when we use sovereignty in the wrong way, and it's also the motives of God that get confused and lost. 
And uh, I know there's some verses that come to mind. Uh, Who are you, O potter, to say to the clay? Uh, why have you used me such, and so on and so forth. There is a sense of truth to all that. God has a wisdom beyond ours and authority beyond ours. And so uh, the kind of questions that are just complaints, the kind of questions that are just whining, maybe they don't have that big a place. But I know I grew up afraid to ask God a complaining question. And I was scared to read the Psalms where David did because it didn't feel right. And now I've come to understand it. You're not going to, uh, I mean, think about reading the book of Job. Job's friends and Job eventually make some pretty rugged accusations against God. But it seems to me that if you keep reading, God's okay at defending himself. <laughs> so I don't think we have to worry about, like, knocking him off his throne. or and, and he doesn't deal with questions from his children with banishment and that type of thing. So we're going to be there. So I think both these things are going to be able to live in our lives properly once we get going. So we're going to move uh, beyond sovereignty, and it's going to open up two things. Meaningful relationship and growing understanding. Meaningful relationship and growing understanding. Now, you would assume that all Christians had a meaningful relationship with God. But if you've ever been around anybody or if you've ever been victim of this yourself, the first time something doesn't go the way you want or something serious that you're really passionate about or some catastrophe comes your way, the uh, underpinnings of your relationship can easily be challenged. And you start going, what's wrong with me? That's how it usually starts. But it eventually gets to what's wrong with you, God. And I just want us to be free of that. And I think this whole idea of, of a separated sovereignty, a distant kind of sovereignty is that way. Growing understanding, we'll see. Here's some points. One, we're invited into relationship with God amid everything that may or may not happen as we expect it. Jesus, and we'll see this in a, uh, if I get to it later. Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit and said, the spirit of truth is going to be with you. The word for with there is meta. There's about five words used in the New Testament. Meta means near. Now you'd think, oh, isn't it going to be closer than near? No, near. When you're near a person, you're engaged with them in the environment they're in. Nearness is a precious thing. Jesus also goes on to say, and be in you. And that's the relational part. You and me, me and you, us and the Father. The Holy Spirit's the one that makes that all real. He makes the room in our heart. But the fact that God is near us as well as in us is a powerful tool because that means he's here with us in this room. He's outside driving home. He's with us when we're facing a situation. There's a nearness, and, and nearness provides a partnership. Um, it's more than a mere relationship, too, because we're called child, friend, beloved, son, I didn't put bride up there because I don't understand how that's going to work. But uh, you see what I'm saying? This is a real relationship. And therefore, so now, I said that sovereignty doesn't speak of morality. Sovereignty also doesn't speak of character and character choices. But being a father to a child or a friend to a friend or the concept of beloved or a father to a son, does speak of morality. And it does speak of society, and it does speak of character. Does that make sense? So these are the things we've got to get used to looking. So if I was the devil, which I'm not, but I've played his part a few times in my life, regrettably, <laughs> and so I have a minor bit of experience, that part being accusing and, and deceiving and stuff. Thank God I don't try to do that too much anymore. These are the things that I would want to use an obvious truth, which is that God is sovereign and can choose to do what he wants, I would want to use that truth 
in a jumbled up way to try to separate a sense of assurance in those that are children, friend, beloved, and sons. And I think that's what we're, we're up against. When people try out try, uh, sovereignty, it's almost always to explain why God's not doing something that they want him to do or why some disaster happened or something along those lines. All right, so over here in understanding, we begin to have the tools and the will to see how things look to God. The reason I put and the will in there is because one of the things that a bad view of sovereignty produces is a passivity. Well, who am I? Who am I to ask, God, why are you doing this? And we're going to get in just a minute into some scriptures that say that maybe one of the things God is choosing is the very reason that there's a need for something to happen in your sphere. Okay, we'll get to it. But we begin to see these tools and have the will to see how things look to God. We can ask real, honest questions without a fear of rejection or retaliation or retribution. Uh, one of the sort of built-in warnings about most conversations that end up in a, a declaration of God's sovereignty is that you better not question it. It'll show a lack of faith. You better not question that or God will get you, <laughs> you know. That is not the relationship we have with our God. God comes into our lives when we are almost 100% ignorant of the truth. And when we were 100% ignorant of the truth, he made the declaration, he made the sovereign choice to come in the person of his son and to become part of us. So being ignorant before God is just kind of the norm for a creature, <laughs> you know? And he knows that. He remembers our frame. He knows that we are but dust. He knows that we see darkly as, as through a, you know, a mirror that's all smoked over. He knows that we know in part. None of those things ever elicit rejection or punishment from God. There's no reason for him to. None, none at all. So we can ask questions, real ones, like the ones David asked that scared me when I was a young believer. Why are you, why are you letting this happen? Now, let's not make doctrines out of those things. I love the one in um, Habakkuk. Uh, Lord, we know you're too holy to look upon sin, so... Uh, uh, why are you letting these guys do this? You know, that was a complaint, not a not a doctrinal statement. Let's lean on Paul a little more than Habakkuk for doctrine. You know, uh, God is not going to punish us, and He's not going to reject us for asking questions. Now, maturity causes us to grow in our ability to ask questions, not as adults, full of reasoning, but as children, full of innocence and trust. And one of the other things that's a huge casualty, a huge casualty of a false uh, application of sovereignty, a moral application of sovereignty, and the assumptions of a moral application of sovereignty is our trust goes out the window. Because the honest truth is, how can you trust a God? And I, I mean, I'm asking this question. How can you trust a God who is un, unknowable and unpredictable and capricious? If that's what you think it is the events attached to sovereignty or thing. Well, the, the senses, it turns trust into a work. Just like a lot of the church growth that we've had, or the church experience we've had, um, I don't want to pin anybody down or po point to one segment of the church, but it turns, it turns faith into a work too, instead of a response. 
Faith is a response of trust towards the things that God said. God told Abraham he was going to have a son. He looked at himself, and he wasn't in a position to have a son. hadn't been for about 30 years, 40 years. But having fully looked at himself, he believed God who made the promise, and he was enabled to have that child. And so uh, we turn faith into work when we push God out the distance and say, now the only way we can bridge that distance is to have faith. We push God off and, and, and call into question the integrity of his character as a father, and uh, we attribute to God things that we would call child services on if our neighbor did them. And we call that trust, and it's not. So that's why I think the devil's behind this stuff. Um, this is a big one to me. With becomes the operational paradigm between us and God instead of for. I spent way too much of my Christian life trying to do things for God, to serve him. Now I know that he wants us to do things with him. What kind of things? Nice things, good things, glorious things, ministry things? Yes. How about ugly things? Who wants to do an ugly thing with God? <laughs> no, your answer is correct. Your answer is totally correct. Here's the okay. Here is the worst here is the worst thing about every one of our lives. What is the worst thing? You tell me and then I'll tell you. What's the worst thing about every one of our lives? No. I want I'm picking for an answer. How about sin? How about sin? Cause uh, cause God to have to send his son, cause his son to die. Here's God's attitude towards sin. Okay? Come. Let us reason together. Now think about this. This is a very significant prophetic declaration out of Isaiah. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Am I saying that because of that, sin is not an issue? No. I'm saying it's the worst issue of our life, but God's attitude towards it is relational. Come, let us reason together. If you, if, 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 as that prophecy was coming out of Isaiah's mouth, I am, or on his pen, however it first came out, I am betting that when, if he had taken the time to think about it, if that's possible while you're getting that kind of prophecy, when God said, come let us reason together, there would have been a dozen other thoughts besides the topic being sin in the next phrase. Come let us reason together. Uh, it doesn't matter. That's God's nature. That's what a father would do. And that's what a father does. And then the other thing a father did is he sent his son to rescue his other children. You see this? This, 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 this idea of a abstract, cold-blooded sovereignty it's not a good representation of who God is. Not at all. So with, instead of for, becomes the operational paradigm. So do you have a big call on your life? you got a ministry, you want to do it? Do it with God. Don't do it for it. He's not waiting on the sidelines, waiting for you to take a stab at it and then give you a grade like a C- minus or something. He wants to be with you. He wants to be with me. Not wants to be, he is. And uh, that passage in Proverbs you know, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Lean not on your own understanding. Your own understanding is kind of the remote package of the logos that we all get. But it's disconnected from God. I can fiddle with my own understanding all day long and never have an encounter with God. But acknowledge him 
acknowledge his presence there because it is, because he's with us. And Jesus said that, you know, he said, uh, um, in the, in the, uh, Great Commission, he says, you know, go and make disciples, not and lo, I will be with you always. I looked at that. Is that meta? No, that's para. Same thing though. It's like paraclete. It's the one who comes alongside. Meta and para are the two alongside or near or proximity uses of the word with. Uh, uh ace is a, is a word that's used for with. It means, uh, in and and coming into intimately, there are two or three others that I might look at later as we as we move forward. But those two mean that you're right here with me. And then think about that. Uh, that allows God to see things from the same vantage point we see them. That allows us to then begin to see from His vantage point and so on. Okay, we begin to see some of the reasons that things appear as they do. Sovereignty shuts down that line of reasoning. Matter of fact, it makes it somewhat of rebellion or sin to even try to figure out why they're doing it. You're supposed to just go, oh, well, it's just God's sovereign. No, there's a million reasons. Okay, so let's start with something simple for a second, and and you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, Can you imagine a reason for an answer or the manifestation of an answer to prayer to be delayed? Pardon me? You're not ready? Could not be, yeah. So the, the point is we can all see that, right? That doesn't mean that God has a, a, a sovereign, abstract will against answering prayer. But he's a father. I mean, so for instance, uh, if uh, when I was a little kid, I went up to my dad and said, can I have the keys to the car, dad? Well, that would depend on how old I was when I asked. <laughs> if I was seven, the answer would probably be, what do you want to use them for? And I go, well, I'm going to run downtown. Uh, no, you can't have the keys to the car. I'll take you. You know what I'm saying? And if I'm 18, hopefully I've been behaving, then maybe I'd get it, or 16 even. But uh, w- what this does, because it, it strips away the fear of, of challenging the sovereignty of God, because we're not challenging the sovereignty of God. We're asking God why. We're asking God how. Lord, uh, uh, okay, here's a beautiful one. Um, just came to mind. So, so the angel Gabriel comes and appears to Mary and says, you're going to have a son and you're going to call his name, uh, most high and all this kind of stuff. He's going to save people from their sins. And she asked a very logical question about this sovereign declaration. She goes, how's this possible since I haven't slept with a man? <laughs> and you know what? Gabriel had an answer for her. The Lord God on high is the spirit of the Lord God on high is going to overshadow you. Da, 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 da. This is all what the enemy tries to shut down. The dialogue between sons and their father. The dialogue between children and their dad. Yeah, oh, Vicki. Uh, sure, yeah, we're making progress. I was going to wait till the end a little bit, but if I get too distracted, you can blame Vicki. Does that be with lovers too? In what sense? Of what you just said. Mm-hmm. With lovers. Uh, like wives. You mean like asking questions and stuff? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Women should be able to ask. Okay. So uh, remember when we were putting on all the different things of how to interpret the scriptures, the who, what, where, Uh when, and why, and how, you know, why, why wouldn't we have that same relationship with the Trinity that we would have in our pursuit of understanding the scripture? So to ask God why or to ask God what? Yeah. (laughs) Or... 
really you're gonna, <laughs> you know, I think that that is, is the meaningful relationship. Yeah. So, just yeah. want to say that. Well, I think, and, and I think it's the same mindset that gets nervous when people start questioning scripture that would get nervous if people were asking questions of God. If you feel the liberty to ask something about, about scripture, in other words, not just accept it the normal way it's been told all the time, uh, because there's a, a sense of threat to that. But there should never be a threat. You don't need to feel threatened. Of all the relationships in the cosmos that you could have, the one you least need to feel threatened by is the one with God. That's why when we were talking about the fear of God, it's appropriate. It's appropriate, but it's not to separate. It's to draw near. Okay? Uh, so there's a lot of reasons why. Um, imagine that there's a whole bunch of people praying for the same thing and God's sorting those prayers out. Or, and he already knows the path to go so because he's sovereign in that sense and he knows what's going on. But uh, what about, what if it's timing? You know, Paul... Uh, was planning on going to Troas, and then he saw, uh, had a dream or vision from a guy from Troas, said, don't go there. Okay. Did that mean he should never go there? Uh, the word eventually got to Troas. I don't know if it was through Paul or who, but it's a, it's a dynamic relationship, and, and that, that essence of that dynamic personal relationship is what gets lost. Yeah. All right, so this changes things. Prayer becomes dialogue, and obedience turns into action, and passivity ends. Prayer becomes dialogue, and obedience turns into action. Like, when I hear people talk about obeying the Word or obeying God, a lot of times I don't really know what it means when I'm listening to them. I don't know what they're looking for. Are they looking for a mental assent, or are they looking to actually go out and do it? Uh, and clearly, the, the actual put action to this is the thing you want. You know you're obeying. You know, like when Jesus said, follow me, they did. <laughs> and there isn't another response that would have been obedience. Uh, you know, Paul, I'm sending you to the nations, to the Gentiles. Well, he went. Um, Ananias. There's this guy named Saul. I know about him. I want you to go pray for him. Uh, Lord, he's trying to kill people. I would prefer not to do that. It's okay to have a, a dialogue, right? It's okay to have a dialogue. But then the dialogue should bring clarity, and obedience should turn into action. If the dialogue doesn't turn into obedience, then we know we've got a heart issue. It's not the end of the world. It just means that the, the arena of work for God and His Spirit shifts from us going out there to us coming to him in here. But this is, it's a, it's a beautiful thing once this gets simple and real and there's no fear involved in it and there's no writing it off to the, to the issues of sovereignty. We learn and embrace the fact that we might actually be able to do something about the unanswered or unwanted things that occur in our lives or in our communities or in our nation. And that's one of the things that sovereignty gets us off the hook for. And I think that's one of the favorite reasons people use it. I don't understand this, and it's kind of scary, so I'm just going to write it off to God's sovereignty and sit here on my butt and stay put. And I don't think that's the thing, and I want to try to walk through that in Scripture a little bit here. So, for example, what are some of God's most basic choices? And this is what I was saying at the end of my review. If we're going to abandon... Okay, so I'll tell you a funny story just for a second. So last week, I thought that... Uh, 
I thought that the message, not necessarily my delivery of it or anything, but that the message that sovereignty only means the authority and power to do something, it had nothing to do with the morality behind the choice or the motivation behind the choice of what it was a sovereign was going to do. I thought that was super clear. And I was kind of going, well, that was easy, you know, and uh, that's all we need to talk about on that. And then I had a conversation with Laurel, and then I, she brought up something that Dennis said that he said kind of half-joking. We talked about it this week. He said, I can just see you open a huge can of worms. Well, when he said that, I was standing here, and I go, I don't see that. I mean, how can you argue the fact that sovereignty only is an authority word? It isn't a moral word. How can you argue that? But then, as we talked about it a little bit more Monday morning, Tuesday morning, whenever it was, um, I started to realize, well, Larry, you can't really take something that has been linked together like that that's really important, like the sovereignty of God is really important. I think we can all handle that. And the fact that there's reasons why God chooses in that sovereignty to do or not do certain things, you can't just really leave that hanging. So that's why we're talking about it this week. And so the next logical step, and I'm, I'm going to trust that we're okay with the sovereignty of God being simply his authority to do what he wants to do. Well, what about his choices? And so I, I thought I'd pick some examples because looking at what God has chosen to do, I think, will help turn our eyes towards who he is and not just the power he has to do something. So that's kind of the theory. Okay, so here we go. God chose to create the cosmos. You can easily see how that's a sovereign choice, right? I mean, he may have consulted within the Trinity, and there's even some suggestion on some of the creative things that there was already a, once the heavens and the earth were created, that the heavens included uh, Elohim, lower beings, uh, councils and stuff. I don't really know. I, I kind of halfway believe it, but I haven't really settled it in my heart yet. But the point is, creation was a sovereign choice. Okay. God chose to create man as a son to himself. Ephesians 1, 3, and 6. Let me read this. Pardon me? Uh, that that uh, God chose to create man as sons to himself. So let me just read this out of here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So let me let me separate out here in this passage of Scripture the sovereign stuff and the moral stuff, or the choice stuff. Okay, blessed be the God and Father of Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's a sovereign choice. We didn't ask for it. He didn't negotiate. He chose us before the foundation of the world. All right? Uh, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless. Now, that is a sovereign choice, but it's a choice that begins to move in the area of morality, in the area of relationship. And then look at this one. According, or, or uh, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, 
which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, do you see how many of those are moral motivations backed by sovereign power? Moral motivations empowered or backed or executed by sovereign power. Does that make sense? So when we're talking about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about the power he has to make a choice. And we're talking about the choice he has. <clears throat> it's, not a, it's not a sovereign choice in, in the sense of content. It, he can make it because he's sovereign. It's a, it's a choice of morality. And in this one, it specifically says something beautiful. You and I have been adopted to be uh, sons as a result of the kind intention of his will. So the primary goal in our Christian life is to grow up to the fullness and measure of stature of Jesus, right? It's to be like Christ. The root of why we can be like Christ, why that is something that is that we're committed to, is because of the kindness of the will of God. Not the authority, not the sovereignty, not the brutalness, the kindness. Have you ever thought of the challenge of being conformed to the image of Christ, growing up and looking like Christ, as something that is a kind thing that God has laid on you? You know? And we've got to start thinking that way. We've got to start thinking that way. Okay, so that's pretty easy to understand uh, as far as the difference there between he sovereignly chose for us to be adopted, but he did so out of a kind heart and a kind intention. God chose to subject creation to man. So, I'll, uh, I'll read these two scriptures too. Back here in Genesis. Um, yeah. Okay, so this is Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps the earth. All right, so that's where we get the idea that man was created to have dominion and to rule over the, the earth, right? We all agree with that. All right, that was a sovereign choice by God, right? He chose to do that. Um, then God blessed them. Oh, no, uh, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And this is why we talk about the ideas of dominion, subdue the earth. Subdue the earth, okay? Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of uh, all the earth and every tree that has fruit yielding seed and it should be food to you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life I have given every green plant for food and it was so and God saw all that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day all right Psalms is a quote that's made in Hebrews let me read the Psalms one here if I can find it no. Back here. I didn't mark that one. All right. You guys are familiar with this one, though. O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
Uh, actually, if we were reading in the NIV, I think that would probably read, O Sovereign Lord, <laughs> just to point it out. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And you have made him a little lower than God. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all the sheep and the oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So you get where the psalmist got that, right? That was back from Genesis, okay? So God made that choice, but that choice then actually engaged you and I in this commission of rule and of dominion, okay? So God chose to protect and to be patient with both man and the cosmos that is subjected to him. So this is where it gets a little more tricky to think about because it gives us a chance to begin to understand some of the whys behind what we write off at being sovereign, okay? So uh, let's review real quick. God chose to create the cosmos. He then chose to create man as a son to himself in the midst of the cosmos, and God made the choice in the creation of man to uh, subject creation to us, and then we messed up. So we have to look at a couple scriptures. So let's look at Genesis Chapter 3, uh, God is, 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 first act of protection is the extension of men. Because if they ate the tree of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were going to die. Or in dying, they, they died. But the extension of life became the first promise here. God is talking to the, the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You get it? She is going to have seed, meaning humans are going to continue. They're not going to die with Adam and Eve in dying because of the ate. Uh, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So that's the first one. That's kind of a big deal. All righty. Uh, 22 and 24, what did I put in there? pages are stuck together. There it is. Okay. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of, from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out at the east of the garden of Eden. He stationed a cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And if you back up a little bit, he said to, to Adam, Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. So in this act of protection which I kind of understand, I think, but not fully. In this act of protection, to keep uh, Adam 
from and mankind from living in this state of responsibility for good and evil, navigation of good and evil, he separated them. But the ground was cursed because of what Adam and Eve did. Why? What, what's, what's right about the ground being cursed by Adam and Eve rebelling and eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Anybody got an idea? It did. And if you think about it, what was the commission that was given to Adam? The commission given to Adam was to subdue and rule the world. Well, when he abdicated his ability to subdue and do the world, or he compromised his ability because he quit walking with God and started living in independent knowledge of good and evil on his own, then the world was cursed. The world was cursed. Okay? So let's get to the next step here then. So now in Romans 8, we read about the fruit of that curse. Take care, Chris. So in Romans 8, Paul says this, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. So let's back up. There's a lot in here. All right, so... What was the condition of creation when Adam and Eve were made and Adam and Eve were commissioned to be fruitful and multiply and rule over creation? What was the, what was the stage of life that, that the whole of the creation was at? I would say even less. I would say almost infancy because we don't know what the condition of the thing was outside the garden. God is the one that planted the garden and had it producing life and, and that full cycle of maturity and reproduction where it was yielding fruit and it was doing all this. Outside wasn't doing that yet. Adam had to physically make that happen with a hoe, with a plow, with carrying water or bringing water. You know what I'm saying? Inside, the, the trees yielded the fruit of every season. So it's like the Garden of Eden was the mature the adolescent or even young adult adult part of creation. And I'm preaching beyond my pay grade here, so this might not be right. But outside was this infancy of creation that Adam and Eve were supposed to bring up. All right, so what Paul is saying is he's saying that all creation, everything outside Eden, is still going through the pangs of childbirth. Why? Because Adam and Eve abdicated their responsibility to have dominion and to be fruitful 
and to multiply. Now, they did become fruitful. They did multiply. But it was not, obviously, with the kind of zeal and authority and overriding power and everything that it was supposed to have. So I'm sitting here thinking, okay, now, keep what, I don't want to get lost. This is kind of a big cosmic journey. We're talking about the sovereignty of God and why, in spite of the fact that he has the authority to do things, it sometimes seems like he doesn't do them. Why he has the authority to stop things or prevent things that sometimes it seems like he doesn't prevent them. All right? Paul is saying that creation was subjected to corruption and futility. Futility, futility means frustration. Some translations translate that way. So creation is now not living maturely. It's living like an infant. Because the parents that were, that were given dominion over it abdicated their responsibility. And, and, it, and, and they're not, they didn't do it. They didn't take care of it. Now they weren't supposed to die. They were supposed to be passing on generation after generation after generation of living information as they caused creation to be fruitful and to become like the garden. And the garden probably had room to grow. Okay, are, are you with me so far? All right, so now, a lot of the things people say are just the sovereignty of God is when a tornado sweeps through the Midwest and wipes out a bunch of homes. What if the tornado sweeps through the Midwest and wipes out a lot of homes because creation is still in the birth pangs of being born and being matured? And they're there because in the middle of the birth process, their parents bailed. And what if God didn't take back the commission he gave Adam and Eve? What if we still carry that? What if it's so important, so deeply related to our identity as being sons of God before the foundation of the world, determined to be holy and blameless before him, that he's willing to keep creation subject to infancy all this time until we are revealed in our full glory as sons of God. Okay. There's time-related issues. There. Yeah, you got to speak at the mic. You can say it's okay. Um, you were talking about occupying. Jesus said, "Occupy till I come." We're still not quite doing that. But well, we're in process. We're in process. We are. And Jesus is the first one that came. So, for instance, uh, the storm the storm that sweeps through the, the Midwest, if Jesus had been uh, having dinner with some friends in a little town in Nebraska, and one of the kids came running in and goes, there's a tornado coming, what do you think would have happened? He would have sent it away. He wouldn't have sent it away as God. He would have sent it away as the Son of Man. He would have sent it away as the person that, that Adam was made to be and that we are made to be. Now, it's obvious that we're not there yet, not in full manifestation. But I will tell you this, because we have a tendency also to divide up secular and sacred things, we miss the fact that we still are people who can bring creation to maturity. 
driving in this morning, Vicky and I saw several ranches, you know, coming in from you guys' place. Uh, they're out there having the cattle of the field have babies, and they're laying alongside the road just sunning and all that kind of stuff. That sounds like they got run over by a car. They're behind the fence on their pasture, laying there in the sun, enjoying life until they turn into filet mignon or something. But, uh, you know, I'm sorry, it's just the way it is. Uh, but the same thing, I mean, think about it. Um, you know, all this uh, hubba-lubba-bubba about uh, global warming and stuff, there's actual reality behind some of that stuff. I don't think that it's quite as dire and, and quite as weird as it, it's put out. But the truth is we, we can pollute the land and we can clean it up. You know, the truth is we can spill oil all over the bays up there in Alaska and then we can clean them up. Uh, the truth is we have dominion. And, and to the extent of the vision, to the extent of the level of the glory we perceive ourselves and we, we, we actually begin to manifest, we can influence this world and you can see it all over the place. That's what civilization is called. That's what industrialization is called. And it has a whole bunch of bad stuff with it, too, because it's not fully redeemed yet. But the reality is we can do that kind of stuff. And a lot of lives are saved, and a lot of, and, and so the earth is once again yielding more and more and more. I mean, if you take the kind of scraggly corn uh, without some of the uh, husbandry and the development, and you know, you can feel however you want about GMO and all those things, but that's not my point. My point is we manifest this commission that we got through our parents in the Garden of Eden all the time. And God takes it seriously because he still lets it happen. And so one of the things that may answer the question to, God, why don't you, is because I gave that to you. And if I took it away, I would be taking away the essence of who you are and who you are to become. Nobody wants to to uh, uh, live, really, under the weight of that kind of responsibility. And I think that's one of the reasons we're so susceptible to arguments like, oh, that's the sovereignty of God. No, I don't think so. I don't think the tornado ripping through a town, destroying homes and families, is God's will. I don't think we have to make it God's will. I think it's God's patience, maybe. Because a patient God, I mean a sovereign God, can choose to be patient, right? Uh, there's that passage this, where the sins of Israel, God forbear them. You know, so a sovereign God doesn't have to immediately punish sin. He can wait. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure that a sovereign God has to punish sin at all. I think we should be careful about saying stuff like that. Because if he's sovereign, he does what he wants. He's not bound by a charter behind him. And I'm not suggesting that sin isn't going to be punished, but I think we mistake the reason why. It's not because it's violated a rule, and it's not because it's offended a sovereign God. Sin is going to be done with because it destroys the children he created. And sin is its own punisher. So, you see how the fact that we... So one of the reasons God chooses not to do something could very well be to be to make space for us to step into that area that we have been shrinking back from. So the scripture says, God's not pleased with those that shrink back. Well, maybe that's why. But surely, if he stepped in and did it, nobody would do it. Because it would be done. Jesus said an amazing thing, which I think should be challenged before we just fully accept it. He told his disciples, it's good for you that I go away. <laughs> 
How could that possibly be? Well, he has attributed it to the Spirit, but what's the Spirit for? The Spirit was given so that we could be endued with power to carry the message of the gospel, to heal the sick, to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, to have all these gifts, right? So Jesus said, it's good for you that I go away. That's him, in one thing, making space for us to be who we were created to be. And who were we created to be? We were created to be adopted as sons, and to be holy and blameless in his sight, and to stand in the full measure and stature of Jesus, according to Ephesians 4. Sovereignty, I think, is a strategy of the enemy conspiring with the flesh to dump responsibility from us to God. And I think it's demonic, and I think it's selfish and egocentric because it also allows us to play the victim in those situations. And then God becomes a violator, a perpetrator, an abuser, instead of a father. And I I stick by what I said. If some of the things we wrote off to sovereignty from God happened next door to us, it would be a criminal violation for us not to call the police on that dad. God does not do that. He is not like that. And sovereignty is not an excuse to use, to paint a picture of him that way. I don't know why God chooses to do what he does. I don't know why he chose to create, except that he uh, loved people and is an other-centered God and wanted to share. I, I really can't pin it down. I don't know why God chooses to do something else. Uh, I didn't go to this one yet. Genesis 6, 5 through 7. Yes, the flood was God protecting man and creation. And if you jump ahead, uh, you can you can see that he did a good job of it. Let's see what else we got on here. Oh, yeah. This is a sovereign choice, too. God chose to redeem man and creation. We see it in Genesis 3.15. I'll read the next two passages as soon as Vicki's done. So um, with the um, situation in Eden and all of that, did did we take on sovereignty? In other words... You know, like you, you look at Cain and Abel. Cain obviously had some sovereign behavior because he was making choices about himself that he didn't want to submit to God. Right. So, you know, do we do this kind of thing? Like you said, the neighbor next door doing the sovereign uh, <laughs> immoral stuff. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, so our, our, did we somehow kind of usurp that? I think so, uh, but I think it's important we go back again to the simple meaning of sovereignty. Sovereignty is the ability to rule within a sphere or a realm. So Adam and Eve were given sovereignty over the mm-hmm. earth. Right. Rule over the earth. And so if that rule wasn't rescinded, then it makes sense that men could make the earth a hell of a place. Mm-hmm. Or your house. Or your home. Or your house. Or... Cain was jealous, well, yeah, I think you're right. Sure. But you see, if we let sovereignty be sovereignty, it, it, it can explain things. It explains why, for instance, this world we are sovereigns of, and therefore we do have to care for it. And if we neglect it, we don't. But, but think about it. I mean, uh, you can see this happening all over the place. It's a limited form of sovereignty. And it's, 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 but it's like God's, and we got it because we're made in His image. He gave us that. 
He did. We didn't usurp that. We didn't lay claim to that. We have no claim to ruling the earth, except that God gave it to us. But in giving it to us, yes, he gave us sovereignty within the sphere of our realm, our rule. We can, yeah, sovereignty can be given. We give it to our kids eventually, hopefully. Sovereignty, if we look at our parents, uh-huh. or if we are parents, yeah. and how we treat our kids, yeah. we want them to grow up. We want them to be responsible and have authority on their own when they become parents. Absolutely. And sometimes there's discipline involved, but it's not because we don't love them, and it's yeah. not because God doesn't love us. It's because he wants us to be sons right. and to grow up in the kind of authority he's given us. Even in his word, when we talk about the scripture, and like you said, the word is Jesus, and Jesus mm-hmm. is the word. And when I look at that, you know, there's been times in our life where we prayed, God, give us a word. We just need a word, and he'll show us a scripture. Yeah. One of those scriptures, we just, we lived on it for three years. Yeah. And, yeah, we could have rushed things along, but it wasn't his timing. Right. And if it had been our timing. there were a lot of other people he was dealing with, a lot of other institutions. Absolutely. Absolutely. He had to work through that with us. Absolutely. And he was, and he did do that. So. Let me make a comment on one thing you said, too, about parents. Uh, You know, parent, you, you said that parents want us. God wants us. God more than wants us to be the people we were created to be. He has decreed it. He has chosen it. That's where sovereignty comes into place. He chose us to grow to the fullness and measure of stature of Jesus. He chose us to fulfill this role. There's other hints in Scripture. Paul says, when, he, when people are arguing, he says, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? That's your destiny. It's not a destiny we earn by being a good Christian. It's a destiny we inherited by being made in the image of God. That's what he made us for, to judge angels, to rule over the earth and to do these things. And we're so used to looking at it from the broken side that we make up excuses for why things aren't happening. When in reality, if we would do it with God, we could say, Lord, what if we band together to try to not have Haiti hit by a hurricane again this year? Those poor people don't deserve that. What can we do? You know, and the inspiration might come to pray and the inspiration might come as to how to go build an inflatable wall. I don't know. But what I'm saying is dominion can take a lot of forms. But God has not released us from that commission, and that's an explanation of a lot of things we call sovereign. Yeah. Um, Jesus said, <clears throat> all authority and all power in heaven and earth is in the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Body of Christ, I love you. I give you my name to use. Yeah. And we have to have faith in that sure. thing. But that goes back to occupying and taking mm-hmm. care of the tornadoes and everything. So we have, because of Jesus, the power and the authority, power on the earth, authority mm-hmm. in the heavens. With, yeah. Well, so. authority in the earth, too. In other words, uh, if a doctor trains up, and, and studies, and then he ends up getting both the power and the authority. He gets the authority, if, I, if I'll grant it to him. He could do a surgery on me to try to save my life. 
That's a one channel of that manifestation. Another channel is like you're talking, declarations in the name of Jesus. Another channel I think uh, Nancy's introducing us to and we're exploring is this idea of going to heaven, seeing what God's doing and making de- declarations to the earth. Uh, another is the giving of your own life. Do you think that Heidi Baker, by choosing to live in Mozambique with those people, isn't acting in a restored form of this dominion? Of course she is. Does, does it 100%? No. But, yeah, so this is this is the thing here. So let, let's pop over here to the next deal. As a point, do you understand what I'm saying? A lot of things we blame the sovereignty of God on are just things that we have not yet, that he's being patient on. He's made room for us to continue to grow to be who we are. And, oh, what I was going to say, but, but what you said, Tim, that's what any father would do. There are times you stop doing something for your child so that they can take the next step forward in maturity. All right, so what all these choices have in common, choices that God made. One, they involve God working in time. So delayed answers, things not happening as quickly as you want, things happening before you're ready for them, those are not acts of sovereignty. They're probably acts of wisdom. Because he has the authority and he has the power, but he's going to be acting out of a fatherly wisdom. And I know sometimes it seems very like how in the world was flooding the entire earth and killing everybody except uh, Noah and his family and um, two of each of the animals and seven of each of the clean animals. How was that fatherly wisdom? Well, I wouldn't have been able to even think that it was, and I would have just been perpetually confused until I got to the passage in Peter where... Jesus actually visited all those souls who were waiting while Noah built the ark. And their their spirits had been in prison. And it talks about that even though they were dead in their flesh, they could be made alive in their spirit. Now, I don't fully understand that. Time is on our side. Time is on our side. I don't fully understand it. But I'm not willing to say that that wasn't a merciful act on the part of God. Because here's man, given dominion, blown it under his own navigational coordination system of good and evil, got to the point after however many generations, nine generations, six generations, something like that, where every thought and intent of his heart, of everybody, except Noah, apparently, of everybody, was evil. That didn't have a future. That didn't have a future. So it involves working in time. It explains a lot of the things we call sovereign. God's ahead, God's behind. He, he's working in time. He's also working with people through creation. Right? And sometimes we're lagging behind. Sometimes creation is still in its resisting mode, in its infancy. I've never heard it talked about like that, but that makes sense to me. It makes it tie up with Romans where creation is still suffering the birth pains. It's trying to grow up and be the glory that it's supposed to be. But it was designed to do that under the nurturing care of people. And where that has happened, it is happening. And where it hasn't, it's not. Yes, sir. It's interesting, that last one, with people through creation. You mentioned about um, God giving dominion to people and he's never rescinded that right i don't believe he has the 
promise of Eden and what his goal was in the beginning has never been rescinded either. That's right. And that's still in the works, and that's one of the reasons why creation is groaning and waiting for humans to wake up and realize who they are. And what Jesus did is he came and showed us an exact perfect imager of God and how to live as a righteous being who walked with God perfectly in mm-hmm. union, and that's what we're our goal is, mm-hmm. is to live like that. The yeah. biggest thing in all of that is God never does anything alone. He never has. He's never been alone. And we're part of that, him not being alone. And he That's always true. does stuff with us. That's true. I don't have time to develop fully, but on the way down, uh, I asked a question of Vicki. I sure look up that verse in Amos where it says, uh, uh, you know, God never does anything except the first he tells his prophets. Okay, now, if you read the whole context of that, God's getting ready to do some pretty nasty stuff <laughs> because of the rebellion of Israel. He's going to let Syria take over, going to do a bunch of stuff. But, but think of that. So what he said, now you may just go, hear that and go, oh, yeah, okay. That's really significant. First of all, when he was ready to create man, he said, let us. Now, I don't know who he's talking to. Could have been the Trinity. Could have been this Elohim council, whatever the case is. But God was doing things relationally, right, relationally. You go into Proverbs, Vicky pointed out to me, that uh, God talked with wisdom before creation. I don't know what that means. I don't. I have no idea. But if it's like the movie The Shack, there's that good-looking gal and God, and they were talking about <laughs> making, making things before they got made. So God's always relational. We think of him as a mono, alone. First of all, he's never been alone because he's always been triune. And second... He's always done things after the counsel of his will, his own dialogue, be it an inner dialogue among the Trinity or with these uh, heavenly beings or with us. Come, let us reason together. He wants to reason together about the problem of sin that we brought on ourselves. God's relational. So don't let sovereignty sneak in and force you to be be, uh, isolated from God. Lastly, so God exercises his sovereignty to redeem, to equip, and to mature us to work with him for his purposes. Make sense? Okay. So last one is, what are some things God's inclusive choices make room for in our lives that are often written off to God? Sovereignty. We've got a few minutes, but we could also shut it down right now because I think the point's made, but if you've got something you want to share, I'd be happy to. Just, I, I want you to start thinking as we go forward. When I'm tempted to call this a sovereign act, what if it's really a reaction to space being made for me to recognize that there's a need here and grow up and go for it? Okay, Ray? Yeah, a sovereignty thing is that before the foundation of the earth, he reconciled all of us. Uh, back to him. Are you, you're basing that on Christ being the lamb slain before the foundation right. of the world? Okay. And uh, he said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Yeah. So I'm taking that as the Lord has already redeemed us yeah. through his precious blood. What is, oh, let me, I, I wanted to read this one passage to you guys. It's in Second Peter. i got a march here. That's a good one, Ray. And it'll, it'll help me kind of nail this thing down. Oh, where is it at? Uh, 
Well, I'm not going to be able to find the one that I put in, I don't think. It's the part about where, oh yeah, 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 here it is, here it is, here it is. Okay, so uh, let me just read this to you. It sounds fun. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. All right, so there's this mockery statement that tries to paint a low-resolution picture with no details about what we have a high-resolution understanding of as, as we listen to the Lord, that God made man to have dominion, and then man blew it, and that dominion <clears throat> went south, and God had to suppress creation, frustrate it to infancy. See what I'm saying? <coughs> uh, where's the promise? For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that <coughs> time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact, and this passage of Scripture I'm going to read and close with, probably explains more, more truly about sovereignty and, and the waiting and patience of God and stuff than any other Scripture. This is in Second uh, Peter 3, starting in verse 8. Second Peter 3, 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. There's a big reason that God doesn't stamp out evil as you understand it. Because like C.S. Lewis says, when the author comes out on the stage, the play's over. He is patient. He is kind. And he has a vision. Uh, it's not even right to call it a vision. He has a clear, he has truth, clear truth about what we were created to be. And he is patiently making room for us to grow into that. He is sending apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for us to grow into that. He has released revelation through the scripture for us to grow into that. And he's making room and making time for us to come into that. Make sense? God's sovereignty is his power to act. God's nature and character of love, goodness, fatherhood, and so on is why. And if we'll just slow down and look at it and not lump everything together, we'll begin to see it. Okay? All right. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are utterly and absolutely trustworthy as our Father. And Father, as we conjure the very best images of fatherhood that we can come up with, they are but a shadow of the true goodness of your fatherhood. Lord, forgive us for ever, ever, ever selling you short as a father or for tarring you with the corrupted and broken images of fatherhood that many of us have uh, either experienced or, or lived out and put on other people ourselves. You are a good father. You are a magnificent dad. And you love us. And so we give ourselves to trust. To trust. And we're not going to write off and short-circuit our ability to learn to hear your voice and walk with you and to trust you when you're, when you're 
answering exactly as we expect and to trust you when the, when the answers either don't look like what we expect or they're delayed. We will not short-circuit our trust by lumping everything into some obscure form of sovereignty. We bless you that you have the power to do all that you will. And we love you because you will to do good to us. Your plans for us are for good and not for calamity. So Lord, help us not be silenced by false arguments of sovereignty. Help us not fear to question you for fear of you being angry or rejecting us somehow. Help us question with the heart of a child to learn, not just to think about, but to do. Help us, Lord, to grow up in the fullness and measure and stature of Christ because of what love provides through everybody that's joined together to provide it. We thank you. We give you glory. We honor you as our sovereign King and Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords, and we love you as our daddy. In Jesus' name, amen.